2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Full disclosure, my mother was a nurse. Producer Katie Pellico's mom, Linda Honan, is a nurse, too. You can't argue with the fact nurses are a vital part of our healthcare system. They care for people when they are at their most vulnerable, and they help so many people heal. Coming up, we'll talk to local nursing students entering the profession. They're needed now more than ever because of a nursing shortage made worse by the pandemic. People may say it's burnout, the reason why nurses are leaving their jobs. We'll hear from Dr. Heather Evans, an assistant professor at University of St. Joseph, who says what they're experiencing is moral distress. That's later. Now, are you a nurse or have a family member in nursing? You can join us as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. With me now on Zoom is Dr. Teresa Brown, a registered nurse and New York Times bestselling author of The Shift, One Nurse, 12 Hours, Four Patients' Lives. Also the forthcoming book Healing out in April. She's a frequent contributor to the New York Times. Teresa, welcome to our show.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
2: So you've been a nurse. You've been writing about the importance of nursing for some time. I mentioned a nursing shortage. It's pretty bad now, but this has been a longstanding issue.
1: Why? That is a great question, (laughs) (laughs) and it's multifaceted. One thing is we just don't have enough slots in nursing schools for all the people who want to be nurses. So people call that a pipeline issue. Mm -hmm. Um, Another problem is as nurses get older, and I think the average age of a working RN is 50-something, they retire, and then because of the pipeline issues, there aren't enough nurses to replace them. So again, it's a supply kind of thing. But the main and pressing reason and the reason that the pandemic really, really exacerbated to a very serious degree is a lot of work environment issues that often nurses have to work without enough nurses on the floor. There are incredible burdens of documentation. Um, There's a feeling that you're just one step away from making a mistake that is gonna get you in trouble or much worse could actually hurt a patient because of the incredible pressure on nurses. And I think a general feeling that it's it's a very hard job, but a very rewarding job, but the parts that are hard have been getting worse and worse and worse, basically because of work environment issues, rigid systems, demands that everyone do more with less, which after a while, just that, that doesn't work. <laughs> and um, the expectation that you can be two places at once or oh, we don't have enough AIDS on the floor today. Well, the nurses can just do their jobs and the AIDS job. Oh, the secretary is out. Or we decided this unit doesn't need a secretary. The nurses can just answer the phones. Or at the hospital where I worked at one point, they decided to reduce the number of transporters, people who take patients to and from tests and procedures. The nurses can do that. Well, that was a disaster because patients hated it because they had long waits. But it's just not safe to expect a nurse to be off the floor for half an hour. And he has other patients that need care and attention and need the nurse to be there. So those are a lot of the stresses. And as you said, uh, moral distress, that feeling of not being able to be there in the way that your patients need and You want to be, that's why you came to work. That's why you're so driven. That's what gets nurses out of bed at all weird hours and working 12 hour shifts. And then to feel like the pressure in the healthcare system to maximize revenue, which also means minimizing the number of nurses is just too great. And and I should explain what I said about minimizing the number of nurses. So doctors essentially earn money for hospitals. Because of the very complicated way that funding in healthcare works, which would be a whole nother session, right? A whole nother hour at least. Um, but nurses are considered a cost to healthcare systems um, because we don't bring in any revenue. So we're the largest labor system in any hospital system, largest labor group, and seen as out and out an expense, right? So if a hospital says, well, we need to really cut our budget, they say, well, can we get rid of some nurses? And you won't find this written down anywhere. You have to read between the lines, but nurses on the floor will tell you they see it happen in all kinds of ways, Um, extra positions like wound care nurses being eliminated, and we don't need a team anymore to start IVs. The nurses on the floor can learn how to do that. Or once on the floor I was working, we had several nurses out on eternity leave. And I think someone was on was sick and was on FMLA. And we were just working short every single day, because there's no money to say, bring in someone because all of a sudden, the floor has five fewer nurses overall. Teresa, you've really painted a dire (laughs)
2: picture. You know, we're going to be talking to local nursing students about why they want to enter the profession. (laughs) But, you know, this is really troubling when you hear, um, you know, it explained this way. And when we think about how the pandemic has exacerbated this, I mean, you've talked with nurses that have been uh, in these ICUs, uh, you know, during the height of the pandemic. And unfortunately, it still continues. And can you talk, give us some examples of, of these compromising experiences they've been in?
1: Yeah, I can, I'll tell one example that I, I spoke with a nurse who was a travel nurse and she said a, a patient in the ICU, suddenly a COVID ICU, a COVID patient, suddenly their oxygen saturations really dropped below normal. And apparently this can happen a lot with COVID patients. They'll be fine. And then all of a sudden, instead of having a you know 98% oxygen saturation, which is normal, they're in the seventies which is an emergency. And she said, normally you would go in, you would disconnect the patient from the ventilator, which is breathing for them. And you would put a, what's called an Ambu bag, probably seen on TV, on the tube that goes down their throat and you would manually send air into the tube. So increase that pressure manually. And she was getting ready to go in and do that and someone stopped her and said, don't do that. It's just going to spread COVID everywhere. This was very early in the pandemic. It's going to spread COVID everywhere. We don't know what that's going to do. We can't do that. Don't go in there. Um, and the, the weight of having to be in a situation like that is incredible. Um, and I'll, I'll tell one more story. I also talked with a nurse manager who was fairly high up who said in her hospital there were doc doctors were not compelled to come to the COVID icus they could put in orders from somewhere else but the nurses were always of course expected to show up and you know i just feel like talk about feeling expendable um that really says it all but but i i do want to say quickly I do still love nursing and it's a great profession. And when I talk to students, I tell them something's got to give, you know, this is a great job. Patients need you, but let's really start talking about the problems because we need to fix them.
2: You're hearing Teresa Brown here on Where We Live. She's a bestselling author of The Shift, One Nurse, 12 Hours, Four Patients' Lives. She's an RN and a frequent contributor to The New York Times. As we talk about the nursing profession, about the nursing shortage, that has been a longstanding issue, how the pandemic has exacerbated, and what's driving people to want to become a nurse. You can join us if you're a nurse or a family member is in nursing, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so when we think about public perception of nursing and how that plays into why some of these issues have not been addressed, Teresa, can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, I think people don't understand what nurses do. And I always give the example of Grey's Anatomy, um, because on that show, you know, which has been on TV for years and, and people love it, including one of my daughters, um, <laughs> the doctors do everything. If the patient is having an emotional issue, the doctor is right there in the room with them. Um, if there's an emergency in a room, oh, the doctor's just out in the hallway and they can run into the room. That is not what actually happens in hospitals. It's the nurse who's the one on the spot um, because doctors, they round, they they make decisions about the patient's care. Their job is very, very important, but they are not the presence in the hospital 24-7, That's the nurse. And when I became a nurse and then started writing about nursing, I said to myself, this is my mission. And I I use those words. I hope they don't sound grandiose. But to really educate the public about what nurses do. And that was a lot of what was motivating me about the shift to to show all the life in one day and all the responsibility and all the choices that we have to make and so often i think people don't realize that until they've been in the hospital or someone they love has been in the hospital and then they look around and they say oh wow all this work is being done by nurses (laughs) Um, so i put some of the blame on just pop culture, you know, TV is not real. um, And yet it does give us a representation that people take home with them. And at the same time, journalists don't often interview nurses that has changed during COVID, which I think is fantastic. And there's a feeling among nurses of, well, I just keep my head down. I don't need to speak up. And that doesn't help us either. Because I think that even nurses aren't always talking about our challenges. And I can give you a quick example of that. I wrote a column for the New York Times several years ago called One Nurse's Very Bad Day, which was this really horrible day I had at work, um, which was still very meaningful, and but just lots of stress and incredibly busy. And in the comments section, someone said, oh, I'm so glad you wrote this because Now I can show it to my husband and he'll understand when I say I had a really bad day. And there were similar kinds of comments. And now my family will understand. So I think we're just not good at talking about all the amazing stuff that we do. Hey, I saved a life today. Uh, Hey, I I kept someone from getting the wrong medication today. Hey, I, you know, at two in the morning, I was there when someone woke up and they just couldn't stop crying because they're worried they're going to die. I mean, just all the amazing things that nurses do even we are not so great at telling our own story and
2: teresa why is that when we do hear these stories from nurses especially in the pandemic there have been viral videos where uh, they might be expressing that they've quit their job or they're talking about these conditions uh, anonymously you know why is it so hard for them to speak up
1: yeah that's uh, a great and telling question There is a lot of fear among nurses that if they speak up, if they use their real name, if they say where they work, uh, there will be very negative consequences for them. And I wish I could say, oh, that's just paranoia. But I myself was uh, forced out of a job I love, the job that I wrote The Shift about because of my writing. And um, so it, it is a very unfortunate reality that there are hospital systems that they want to control every message that comes out. And they especially, I think, don't want nurses talking about work environment or, or the, str- it shouldn't say work environment, the stresses that nurses are under that really affect patients because that's going to quote unquote, make them look bad, which was, I was told you're making the hospital look bad, even though the hospital was never named, et cetera so there is real fear there and i think a lack of understanding about why nurses might really strongly feel that they need to be anonymous and um i find that so frustrating because we read political coverage in the news right and there are anonymous sources all the time right talking about all kinds of things that go on in washington and yet if a nurse wants to be anonymous i'm not sure journalists understand the necessity of that for that nurse. And I I certainly know other stories of nurses. Well, one in particular who, who spoke out about what was going on during COVID and then got called into HR and had this just humiliating meeting where they asked her to read aloud their social media policy and policy for talking to journalists and, um, so th- there is a sense, not just that we want to control the message, but why are nurses talking? We don't want them to be talking. So a sense of who has the legitimacy to speak, to speak about healthcare. care. Um, and uh, I wish there were more protections for employees and for whistleblowers. That would be great.
2: You're hearing Teresa Brown, an RN here on Where We Live, as we talk about the realities of nursing today. I thought it was really telling, uh, Teresa, that you said that you love nursing, but you have been forced out. And so are you practicing nursing right now?
1: I am not at the moment, which makes me sad. I'm, I'm only writing. For me, it's, it's also a personal story. I was diagnosed with breast cancer now four years ago, um, and I'm doing great. Uh, I'd been teaching when the pandemic hit and I wanted to go back to work in the hospital because I felt like this is an emergency. I want to do my part. And one of my daughters made it clear that that idea just was very upsetting to her. Um, So, you know, mom, she didn't say this, but so much just said, I don't I don't want you to risk your life on the job. And uh, I thought, you know, that's fair. I just had cancer. Um, I'm not going to do this. Uh, and, you know, felt terrible about it and then realized you know, my guilt, first of all, helps no one, but second is nothing compared to what the actual nurses who are working are going through. And then I set myself to, okay, I want to talk to nurses. I want to know what's going on. I want to be able to speak about the challenges that nurses are facing. So that's where I put my energy.
2: And part of uh, your experience is that part of the memoir that's coming out in
1: April, Teresa Healing? Yes, because I was an oncology nurse, then became a cancer patient, and was uh, terribly disappointed that uh, healthcare often just is not that nice to patients, and uh, felt like a person going through the revolving door uh, with kind of a cash register on the end, even though we have very good insurance, it didn't cost me a lot, but it just in so many small ways was incredibly confusing, dehumanizing. And this is what I discovered. I thought I knew this because I'd worked with cancer patients, but uh, getting a cancer diagnosis is terrifying to be honest And I think I'd never quite gotten that because you have to have some sense of a wall uh, to be able to do the job. I I couldn't come to work every day thinking, wow, all these people are terrified and I have to help them be less terrified. And, you know, that's not sustainable emotionally for staff. But I'd also absorb this idea of I know what they're going through. Well, no, I, I didn't know what they're going through. And the patients I took care of were so much sicker. They had a much more serious, more aggressive disease than I had. And I was terrified knowing what I know. And um, it was really a revelation to me that we need our healthcare to be more compassionate. And that's the theme of the book. And uh, looking at instances when I was a nurse and went the extra mile and more and times I felt like I just couldn't do it. And and also realizing that it's, it's simple, you know, people say, well, we hospital systems have to make money and they have thin margins and they need revenue. But there were places that were kind and they did it through very simple things, politeness, civility, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, explaining things clearly, you know, this is not hard stuff. And yet so many places it didn't happen.
2: You're hearing Teresa Brown, again, a registered nurse, a best selling author, and she contributes to the New York Times as we talk about nursing today here on Where We Live. We'll be back after a short break. You can join us too 9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You've seen the viral videos of nurses and other healthcare professionals talking about the stress they've been under caring for people in this pandemic. As we heard from guest Teresa Brown, the experiences of nursing staff over the last 20 months have exacerbated the nursing shortage. What's being done to help nurses during this public health crisis? Hartford HealthCare tells us it rolled out a peer support program more than a year ago. Staff are also connected to confidential counseling. And there's a partnership with American Nursing Association's Wellbeing Initiative. We wanted to hear more from nursing educators and local nursing students who are entering the profession. Joining us now on Zoom, Dr. Heather Evans, who's assistant professor at University of St. Joseph's nursing program. She's also a certified registered nurse.
0: Heather, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Lucy. It's, it's really a pleasure to be here this morning and to share information about nursing. We don't always have the opportunity to make our voices heard.
2: So tell me when you are in the classroom and you're talking with uh, future nurses, uh, I'm wondering if you can tell us what they share with you about uh, nursing, you know, what they've experienced as they're you know, again, looking to get a master's at St. Joseph's, uh, what their experiences have been on uh, the floor.
0: Well, you know, at at USJ, we actually have undergraduate students becoming RNs. We also do have uh, master's degree students and doctoral students, and they're all under a great deal of pressure right now. Our students who are becoming nurse practitioners, they're working as nurses and going to school full time. So they're kind of in the trenches. They're seeing what's going on. They're experiencing this. They're being pulled in so many different directions. And you know a story that I've shared, uh, which is really meaningful to me, is that on the very first day of class this semester, um, I was teaching the philosophy of nursing course to master's degree students. And the first question I asked of the class is, what is nursing? Um, you know, I figured there's going to be a variety of different definitions. And you know, lots of people are going to say different things. And we were going to kind of explore that. So you know, students raise their hands. The first person I called on, I said, "So, what is nursing?" And her answer was really simple—not what I thought it would be. And it kind of made me pause. It you know, it 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 almost made me gasp. Um, this is a profession that I love, that I respect, uh, that that I'm so proud of, and to hear this student who was in fact a new rn she had, she had been an rn for one year and was so motivated she had gone back to school to become an apr an advanced practice uh, registered nurse uh to help us fill the gaps that we know exist in healthcare in our societies um and she did that right at the start of the pandemic and she's you know she's pretty disillusioned by by what's going on mm.
2: So talk us through when we hear that kind of anecdote, you know, are, is that particular a nursing student getting the support now? And then the role that nursing educators like yourself play in helping address uh, these shortages that we're hearing about too.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I have to say that the, the shortage isn't new. We've had a nursing shortage for a long time. We've had a broken healthcare system for a long time in the United States. We really just focus on treating illnesses, and we undervalue health promotion and disease prevention. Um, we spend more on healthcare than any other high-income country, yet our health in- our, our health incomes uh, outcomes are consistently worse. I mean that says a lot. And this COVID pandemic has really just shined a light on health disparities all without our within our country. And these are from significantly entrenched social and structural racism, discrimination and poverty. And we as nurses are on the front line. We are front and center to observe these inequities in our healthcare systems, and it's really, really hard. So we try to address that in nursing education. We try to empower our students to understand what is going on and to give them a voice to help them so that as they move into the workforce or as they advance in their role as a nurse or an advanced practice nurse, they can speak up and start to make the changes that are really necessary um, in our our healthcare system and in our societies. Um, We know we have trouble uh, recruiting students, um, especially students from diverse and underrepresented populations. We have to get better at that. Having said that, we just don't have enough ability to train the the nurses we need. Um, Can you quantify that
2: for us? uh, When we think about uh, the the nursing programs in our state, the number of applicants you're getting and how many actually get a seat, Heather?
0: Oh, sure, yeah. It's actually pretty surprising. In, In 2020, so last year, the seat capacity for new RNs, so registered nurse students in Connecticut, was 2812. So just under 3000 seats available for new RN students, okay? But during that same year, there was 11,934 qualified applicants. So that's not all applicants, that's applicants that qualified to become a nurse, to 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 take the program, to start nursing training. In our, in our university systems. So we have almost 3,000 seats. We have almost 12,000 qualified applicants. That means that only 23% of our qualified applicants can actually pursue that RN education. Um, you know, so we, we know we have a need, but we, we don't have the ability to train more nurses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not as simple as just, oh, well, let's just, you know, open more seats. Let's just Enroll more students, which is what we'd love to do, but of course, that takes more faculty, (laughs) and we also have a faculty shortage. Um, 39 full time faculty positions are vacant in Connecticut for our just for our RN programs, and that doesn't even account for our other nursing programs or advanced practice nursing programs. Um, and 50 percent of our full time faculty for RN programs are over 55 years old, so we know that. You know, there will be retirements at some point in the near future. We also lack preceptors and placements. So, you know, it's not just book learning. Uh, We wouldn't want our nurses to only have book learning. Um, It's great. There is a huge foundation of knowledge that our nurses and advanced practice nurses require, but they also need clinical experiences. They need preceptors. They need mentors who are working, who can take them under their wing. Um, and that's hard. We've got nurses in the workforce working with lack of resources. They're overworked. They have too many patients, and now we're asking them to please take on a student. (laughs) So they're being pulled. They already feel this moral distress because they know that they're not able to give the care that the patients deserve due to lack of resources, lack of staff, lack of support, and now they also feel the distress of that desire to mentor and support the new and upcoming nursing workforce and they just many times don't have the ability to do that. Um, Heather you
2: mentioned preceptors uh, so uh, preceptors uh, they play a big part in clinical rotation so these are hands-on opportunities that nurses have preceptors are the professionals letting students work with them uh, so they're getting that experience.
0: Right, right And the the trouble can be even more significant, finding preceptors for APRN students. Those are students who are going to become nurse practitioners um, because they need to do their preceptorship. They need to be in clinical with another APRN or an MD or a physician in their uh, specialty areas. And again, that's really difficult to find but in addition, there those same preceptors can also precept PA students and medical students, and sometimes other students like um, physical therapy students or things like that. Um, so that you know, there's almost like a competition there. And there's already not enough of them, and then they can they can precept other types of healthcare students, and PA students and medical students. Are actually able to pay for those clinical preceptors. So, you know, if you can take on two students as a healthcare provider and you can get $1,000 per student if you take, you know, physician students, MDs, MD students, um, or you can do it for free or for less money taking a nurse practitioner student, unfortunately, a lot of times we we lose out. Um, We have a a really great um, opportunity. Uh, we were lucky in that uh, Representative Greg Haddad. Uh, we met with him. I met with him with a colleague of mine, and we explained the nursing shortage and what that means, and our needs for clinical placement and clinical preceptors. And he actually, at the time, was um, you know with the Higher Education Employment Advancement Committee. Uh, he was one of the co-chairs, and he authored and put through a bill aimed at addressing. That shortage. Uh, And we were really, really fortunate to have that. Uh, Unfortunately, that happened right as COVID was coming. And, you know, the bill, although uh, was unanimously voted um, in favor and moved forward, it uh, died because, of course, COVID came and lots of other bills had to take precedent. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, we do have people who are willing to start speaking out for us. Uh, But but we really just just need so much more uh, in order to maintain what we have Mm -hmm. and hopefully improve what we have.
2: You're hearing Heather Evans, who's an assistant professor at University of St. Joseph's nursing program. I wanted to bring into our conversation a USJ nursing student who's getting her master's, Victoria Rufa. Victoria, welcome to the show. Victoria, can you hear us?
3: Thank you so much. I'm excited (laughs) to be here.
2: So you're you're already a registered, I can hear you now. You're already a registered nurse, and you're studying, I understand, to be a family nurse. Okay,
3: so thank you for having me here. I appreciate it. Looks like uh, yes, Vic- I am
2: studying to be a family nurse practitioner. Uh, Victoria, we're going to try to get you on the phone. I think there's a delay in your in your Zoom connection, uh, so just to uh, hold on, uh, and we'll get you um, by phone. I wanted to take a a, a quick call, uh, Mary from New Haven. Mary, you're still with us. Tell tell us what you wanted to share.
4: Oh hi. Um, so I will just give you a brief um, background. I was a home health aide, an LPN, a registered ASN, BSN, and ELM, and APRN. I've always worked within um, marginalized communities with HIV, AIDS, psych, and addiction medicine. And I just wanted to say so many things now that I've been on the phone for a while. But um, one is that, you know, nurses are reticent to report um, problems at work because they will be punished. And that's true. The other side of that is that sort of martyrdom and overwork is rewarded. And I think that goes to a more societal issue with, um, you know, uh, the way women are treated in society, right? Um, anyway... <laughs> Then I was listening to so much more, and now I have so much more to say. But I'm sure you don't have time to hear it.
2: Well, we thank you for staying on the line with us, uh, Mary, to share uh, that comment. Um, Teresa Brown is still with us. Teresa, did you want to respond to our caller about how
1: martyrdom is rewarded, as she says? Uh, I I think that is true. I don't. I hate to say that it's gendered um, because there are certainly um, well men in nursing, but also. Uh, medicine has historically been male, although now it's it's even, and there are certainly plenty of doctors who overwork themselves. But there is a culture of you show up, you soldier on no matter what. Um, you know, if you're sick, well, how sick are you? Um, people think that nurses are told not to come to work when we're sick. That is absolutely not true. <laughs> um, if you're on the schedule, you're expected to show up. If you're asked to stay later, um, there's a lot of peer pressure to feel like you need to do that. If you're called to come in for another shift, there's a feeling of guilt if you say no. um, I think these are really universal feelings and probably the job attracts people who really want to give 110%, but then it ends up taking advantage of those instincts and people. Hmm. And it's, it's hard to say no. It's hard to learn how to say no. Well,
2: Victoria is back with us. Victoria Rufo again, who's a University of St. Joseph nursing student and RN. Victoria, can you hear me now?
3: I can. Can you hear me a
2: little bit better? Yes, thank you. And so uh, tell us about your path uh, to studying to be a family nurse practitioner, because I understand you also worked in critical care during the height of the pandemic. And so what did you experience and how did that impact uh, the path that you're on now?
3: Yeah, um, that's yeah, it's definitely been a very long journey. Um, I have been a registered nurse for eight years Um, And throughout that time, I've worked a lot in the Northeast, um, and and primarily my experience is in critical care. And I did work in in, um, three to four different ICUs during the time of COVID since it started kind of in like, I think, in Connecticut around March in 2020. Um, And I uh, kind of decided to embark on the school journey, which probably similar timing during the pandemic. Um, But I was just kind of noticing that, you know, we've done a lot of talking about how kind of, like, nursing voice is not really heard, and, you know, I felt like I needed to kind of embark on a on a journey to kind of be more of a leader in our profession. So I kind of started looking into um, pathways to do that, um, and I did stumble upon the University of St. Joseph's Nurse Practitioner Program, um, and I really like their mission and their message, and that's kind of why I got into that. So I, I started that in January of this year. And actually transitioned from, you know, ICU bedside nursing um, to an outpatient setting um, in April of this year.
2: Tell us more about that decision to move from bedside nursing uh, to outpatient and how the nurse to patient ratio that you experienced uh, informed that decision.
3: Yeah. um, So a lot of what, you know, the the people prior to me. I've been talking with Lisa um, and Dr. Evans about, you know, kind of like the safety and this like, moral ethical dilemma um, um, is definitely very palpable. um, And I think uh, we don't get asked a lot about it. um, And I agree with everybody saying that, like, nurses really don't have a voice. And if anything, they, you know, um, hospitals do try to almost kind of silence nurses, I think, a little bit because they don't want it to make the hospital look bad. Um, but I think when we're talking about hospital administration, we're talking about bedside nursing and kind of the, like what that moral ethical dilemma is. I think it, it, a lot of it has to do with like the paradigm in which nurses are kind of forced to work into. Um, and we did a lot of conversation about this over the past semester about how, you know, a, a lot of people think, um, you know, medicine or I should say, like a medical paradigm maybe more like doctors, physicians, or administrative, their their kind of uh, focus is on, you know, curative or treatment or diagnosis because these are kind of the, or procedures, because these are kind of the things that bring in revenue for the hospital. That's what's really focused. But nursing is actually a whole nother science in and of itself. And while we intersect with the medical paradigm of practice, a nursing paradigm of practice really is, Person-focused. It, it, we're that catalyst for that patient. That's not only helping them, you know, with their medicines and their diagnosis, but we are, you know, we will pivot to um, pivot to get the person social services if they need it, or pivot to get the person like financial services if they need it, or pivot to make sure that home they're going to be safe and they're not going to have a quick readmission. So there is like a lot of. Like, Teresa talked about it, about, you know, how nurses kind of pick up where other people left off. I actually call it the fallback technique where nurses are, are, our role is so undefined to other people that aren't in our role that they just say, oh, well, you know, if you're down in aid, the nurse can do it. Or if the secretary isn't there, the nurses can answer the phone. And this does create a moral dilemma because while we're taught to care for the whole person and make sure that they have all of their needs met. Um, we're just kind of being told you need to forget your education, you need to forget what you've been told, and you need to just do these tasks because this is this is what is going to make mm-hmm. us the most money um, for the day. So, you mentioned
2: uh, the moral distress. Uh, so, did you experience uh, during this time uh, like a five to one nurse to patient ratio? I
3: did, um, and you know there was one day during COVID, and this was during like the very first um, wave where. I came into work um, and I was placed on one side of the nursing unit where usually in a critical care unit it's set up where the nurse's station, you can kind of visualize all the patients. So if there's an emergency, I can see that you need help. But because we were so short staffed, I happened to be the only nurse on one side by myself and they gave me a nursing assistant and they said, you are going to take care of these five patients on these five ventilators for 12 hours and it's not a discussion it's just what's going to happen and there was a you know like a I'm sorry thing but there's also on my side of things a lot of guilt and just for the listeners who don't know normal safe um, staffing in like patient ratios should be in a critical care setting two to one um, because there's a lot of needs and a lot of emergency things that can happen when you're not keeping your eyes on these patients and so in that shift, I, you know, had to kind of like choke back whatever emotions were happening. And I was like, you know what, my eyeballs on these people um, could maybe be what saved their lives. And even if it's only 10 minutes instead of the, you know, 30, 40 minutes they deserve, it's it's more than nothing. Mm. And this this was a lot of what was experienced during the pandemic. And... Though the pandemic did exacerbate this, I'd be lying if I said these kind of things weren't happening even before COVID. You know, it's wow. not it's not rare to come in and them to be like, you know, we're short staffed. You need to take three vented patients today, which is very unsafe. Um, but, you know, y- you kind of just rationalize with yourself that is this is going to have to be OK. <laughs> so.
2: Well, I'm really sorry to hear that happened to you. Uh, it's it's really upsetting when we think about um, the stress that um, uh, nurses uh, have been under in the pandemic, but also when, from the family perspective, if you have a loved one uh, in an ICU. Um, it's life or death, and you we would hope that um, they're getting the care uh, that they deserve and that uh, nurses aren't expected um, c- to continue uh, to work under these conditions um, because it really comes down to safety. I just wanted to share a, a, a comment from a listener. Um, Michael had uh, tweeted, as an LPN who works in a nursing home, I would like to say the patient to nurse and aid ratios in Connecticut are long outdated. The more shifts I work, no matter how hard I work, how long I work, and even skipping breaks, I feel I cannot adequately complete my duties. It's disheartening and frustrating, but we do our best and give our all. Uh, I wanted to uh, thank Victoria Rufo again for joining us in RN, a first-year student getting her master's at University of St. Joseph, Dr. Heather Evans was also here, a certified registered nurse and an assistant professor at University of St. Joseph's nursing program. After the break, we're going to talk to another Connecticut resident uh, who's in an accelerated nursing program. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're talking about the nursing profession today. Joining us now is Tori Johnston, a first-year student in Quinnipiac's accelerated Bachelor of Science in Nursing program. Tori, Welcome.
5: Hi. Hi. Good morning, everyone.
2: I understand your uh, recent arrival to Connecticut and you were a nurse's aide before, I believe. So talk about this transition uh, to become, I believe, a registered nurse. And, you know, we've heard about a lot of the challenges in nursing. What excites (laughs) you about uh, this field?
5: Well, I I decided uh about I think 3 or 4 years ago that I I wanted to become a nurse. I mean, I think I've always wanted it as a little girl. We have my little nursing bag. But um I I lost my job kind of unexpectedly and I I thought, well, is this one of those occasions where one door closes and another opens and I was like, that's it. I'm I'm going to do it. But of course, I had to uh, fulfill all these um uh, horrible prerequisites before I could get to to the application process, but uh, eleven prereqs later, uh, still working full time. I then also became a, a nurse's aide. I totally agree with um, with the the guy that tweeted in. I think uh, nurses have a hard time, but nurses aides as well in nursing homes are. Uh, it's a very, very tricky situation. But again, I think it made me more determined uh, to do what I was going to do. And I uh, started looking around for programs and it really had to be an accelerated one um, because I I can't really afford to be out of, you know, the job market for that long. And uh, Connecticut, well, Quinnipiac actually offered a one-year start to finish. Um, So do they ever cram it in in that year? We are uh, um, 18 credits, I think we did, Um, this this past semester we're just about finished with it but it was uh, an amazing program it's uh, also I was drawn to it because it's uh, it's accredited by the uh, holistic uh, holistic accreditation so that to me was very appealing the one year was appealing um, so we traveled across country from California and here we are and I love it I'm loving it Um, I see the challenges but Mm. I'm absolutely loving every
2: minute well welcome to connecticut we just have a few minutes left can you talk about your clinical rotations you've been doing
5: once a week yeah we've been uh we have a a clinical rotation in the med surge floor at bridgeport hospital and i do agree with a, a lot of what um what heather actually said about uh you know a nurse will sort of um eye roll when she sees all this all the students coming on the floor but for the most part we've had an amazing experience uh they Um, are quite grateful for the help again and that does back up what everyone said. Um, So we've had an amazing experience with some very sick people and many of of the the students in my cohort have never even touched a patient before Um, so it has been eye-opening for them but I luckily had uh, you know I had been in a hospital setting before so I had that advantage but we've had a pretty great experience and um, our next unit is going to be mental health uh, which I think will be in interesting and challenging too but um it hasn't put me off the pandemic has not put me off in fact I think it's made me more determined to be a nurse and um to you know to try and make a difference a small difference if you can you know every day so um it's um I'm excited to be to be here and to be to be you know going to be entering this profession as soon as possible and I, I can't wait
2: uh you'll be declaring a specialty or what is something that you want to pursue once you get
5: that bsn well i think the, the great thing about nursing is you have so many options um you know there's uh, i'm personally interested in in traveling and, and doing going to different places and being a travel nurse but i particularly like um, the older population i've really enjoyed working with them i i also think i'm very interested in women's health but as everyone says you know the world uh, is your oyster. Once you become a nurse, you can, you can pick your specialty and you don't have to declare that, you know, at this time. So that's, uh, that's quite, that's quite good too, because I'm sure once we've done our rotations in different places, maybe my mind will change, but um,
2: yeah. Well, I think it's great to hear that, uh, you know, you're pursuing uh, this dream, Uh, Tori Johnston, a first year student in Quinnipiac's accelerated Bachelor of Science in Nursing program. Thank you for talking a little bit about your background and, and your reasons for pursuing nursing, Tori. We need it. We need more of you.
5: <laughs> more of us. Okay, I'll, I'll see if I can duplicate myself.
2: <laughs> Thanks again, more Tori. Than that. I wanted <laughs> to share a tweet. Uh, Shannon writes, my husband is an, an RN, a registered nurse at a Connecticut hospital that is nearly always short staffed. It's definitely a decision, Shannon writes, that the hospital is making to save money at the expense of nurse and patients. Sounds like we need to do a follow-up uh, to this show, but I want to thank all of our guests uh, for the really uh, thoughtful comments about uh, nursing, the challenges, and the joys. Uh, today's show was produced by Katie Pellico. I'm Lucy Nalpath We hope you have a great weekend.